Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, we go scene by scene through the Warner Brothers films that are part of the Justice League universe. In this episode, we are going to talk about scene 13 of Wonder Woman, which is the conversation between Diana and Steve in the infirmary. This analysis was written by myself with Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, and Sydney. You can find us on Twitter at Ott and Sam, at Raverin, at DerbyKid, and at WonderSid, respectively. In our last episode, we covered Diana's conversation with Apollida about what the Amazons should do with Steve and what they should do about the World War. Now we go from that interaction between her and her mother to an interaction between her and the other most important relationship in the movie with Steve. And in a few minutes, we'll give a quick recap of how each scene that involves Diana and Steve does a nice job of pushing their relationship forward. But before we get to Steve, we actually have a quick bit with Diana and the Doctor, a pioneer, played by Eleanor Matsura. This Doctor, by the way, is yet another woman of color, following up on a couple who had lines in scene 12. And the only reason we mention that is because many people criticize the movie for not featuring enough women of color. But anyway, a pioneer takes the bandage off Diana's arm and is surprised to see that the scratch has healed so quickly. After the bracelet blast, this is another little indication of Diana's extraordinary powers. And a pioneer, the healer, calls it strange. This probably means that she has never seen Diana's supernatural healing ability before. And this leads to a couple possibilities. First, it could be that Diana has never exhibited these abilities before. Maybe because she's never been injured, although that's unlikely because of all the hard training she's done for years. Or perhaps she's never exhibited these powers because they were only just now released when she tapped into her power with the bracelet blast. In that case, this is a new and strange occurrence not only to Apione, but also to Diana. Although Diana is too preoccupied at the moment with Antiope's death and thinking about Steve's story that she doesn't really think about it in the moment. The other possibility is that Diana has exhibited these healing powers before, but it's just that Apione was never aware of them. Perhaps she and other Amazons don't actually know about Diana's divine origin. We can't know for sure how many Amazons know about Diana's secret. The only ones who are confirmed in the movie are Hippolyta, Antiope, and Manilope. If Zeus made a big show of creating Diana as the god-killer, then maybe a lot of them would know. But if it was more discreet in the beginning, then it's fairly likely that it's a limited number of women who know the secret, because that makes it easier to keep a secret. And Hippolyta does seem pretty protective of the information, so she has probably kept a pretty tight lid on it for a long time. A final possibility is that Apione notices the strange healing, but attributes it to the unknown weapons from man's world, rather than to supernatural abilities in Diana. This, if she thinks about it as something related to man's world, then that could explain why Apione isn't more probing of Diana, because she assumes Diana doesn't know anything about the weapons either, or about this new healing thing. So the main beat here in this quick interaction is us seeing Diana's healing powers. The next little thing that happens is that Apione asks if it's true that Diana saved his life, referring to Diana pulling Steve out of the water. Diana is a bit surprised to hear this, perhaps because she thought that nobody saw her or knew about her diving into the water, and also she was already feeling like she was under scrutiny because of her bracelet blast, so she might not have wanted the attention of bringing a man onto the shores of Themyscira. As far as the Amazons knew, Steve might have washed up there on his own. But anyway, Diana asks who told her about that, and Apione says that he did. This implies that Apione assisted Steve, which means that they're showing him some compassion and care, and it also means that Hippolyta probably approved of the care being given to the stranger. 
Now that Diana knows Steve has talked to at least one Amazon, and that he isn't a completely off-limits prisoner, she immediately wants to go and talk to him herself, which leads us into the rest of the scene. And we also wanted to say that there is good pacing throughout this part of the movie. We saw the battle on the beach, which was an intense and fatal action scene, and then we got to follow that up with the intensity of Steve's story, which was a burning question that needed to be answered right away about how Steve got there. And now that is immediately followed up with a more emotional and somewhat funny and touching scene. So we're getting a good flow of different energies across these scenes. And they are well connected, too, because of the links like the bandages and the bruises from the earlier battle. And of course, Diana and Steve want to use this opportunity and the privacy they have to get to know a little bit more about each other. That brings us to one really strong aspect of Act 1 of this movie, and really the movie overall, which is that each scene with Diana and Steve does something meaningful to push their relationship forward. In the first scene, we see Diana taking an important plunge forward in her life, where up till then she'd always been held back, and Steve was part of this important moment. It was also obviously their first meeting, and on the beach they showed a mutual curiosity toward one another. Then in the next scene, they faced danger together and fought at each other's side. They provided mutual defense, each saving the other. Then, in the lasso interrogation scene, their connection grew as Steve shared his story and his fears about the war. Diana immediately connected with that story and shared his concern and compassion, both of them mutually wanting to do something to stop the war. So you've probably noticed that mutuality is a common thread in their relationship development, and that mutuality will continue here in scene 13. But before we get into their interactions, we need to mention the set design and cinematography. It's amazing that even the caves are beautiful on Themyscira. One especially striking feature is that the water is luminescent, which is how the Amazons get their light at night. Because their bioluminescent water looks different than what we actually see in nature, it's likely that it is another magical aspect of the island. It may also have healing benefits, which is why it's so plentiful in the infirmary here. When Steve asks later why the water does that, it further suggests that it has some magical properties. With regard to the water, director of photography Matt Jensen talked about it as the visual element in this scene that is really unique and stands out. In general, he said in the art and making of the film book, quote, The thing that you want to do is remember that a comic book is built on singular imagery. Even though we were shooting a drama, you still want to be image-driven in your approach. There has to be something that is visually striking about every scene, and hopefully every shot, end quote. And I think they really did meet that goal in Wonder Woman. And it being so beautiful to look at and so visually compelling is a big reason it was so well received. And really the DCEU overall has maintained a focus on images as opposed to a dialogue heavy or action driven approach. Of course it has action, but it's not fueled by the action. There are so many iconic visual moments in all the DCEU films. And Man of Steel, BVS, and Wonder Woman especially do a great job of combining the visual with the dramatic, so that the combination reaches new heights of cinematic storytelling. They don't just have luminescent water because it looks cool, but it adds to the magic of Themyscira and it represents Steve Trevor's character being revitalized and reborn in a way, about to set forth with new purpose and new vigor. Man of Steel didn't just have Kel-El walk out of the scout ship because it looked cool, but it represented his birth as Superman from Father Krypton and Mother Earth, with the planets shown on either side of the scout ship doorway. 
In BVS, it wasn't just cool to see Batman flung to the edge of the building and then looking down in the rain toward camera, but it represented the fact that his character was coming right up to the edge of his dark path of vengeance, where he was in danger of losing himself. Zack Snyder in particular is a master at bringing these singular images to the screen, and it's why he often gets praised for making movies that are like the comic books come to life. Sometimes he also gets criticized for being too visual, but we would suspect that this is because people are not receiving the visual meanings in the ways that they were intended. They might see the visuals, but they might be missing these thematic connections that we were just giving examples of. Snyder marries the visuals together with the themes, as you can even see in his new short film, Snow, Steam, Iron, shot with an iPhone and yet still very visually striking. Back to Wonder Woman, though, we mentioned Matt Jensen, and we should say that he had prior experience on another superhero film, Fantastic Four, in 2015, and he also worked on Game of Thrones. And by the way, another Game of Thrones alum is Fabian Wagner, who is the DP for Justice League. Alright, let's get into the scene with Steve and Diana. It starts with a funny beat of him watching his own toe in the water, and you can tell that he's feeling much better than he was when he was wrapped up in the Lasso of Truth. Seeing him having fun in the water also lets us know that we can relax for a bit after the stress of the previous scenes, and we can open ourselves to some new information and some banter between the characters. The first part of this scene is basically an objectification of Chris Pine as the male love interest. He is positioned with no clothes on, and then he will be sized up by the main character. This is clearly a reversal of the typical gender roles that have existed in cinema for basically a century. Usually it has been women who were subjected to scenes like this, where we get to know them very early in the movie, but they're in a very scantily clad outfit, sexually objectified. One such scene that really stands out to me where they did this was Alice Eve in Star Trek Into Darkness, where the filmmakers put her in just straight underwear for no good reason. And that scene, interestingly enough, was with Chris Pine. But here in Wonder Woman, these filmmakers turn the table and make it so that a woman gets to ogle at the bare-skinned man. And it's great that Diana is actually pretty unimpressed. She has some curiosity and asks if he's typical, but it's not that big of a deal to her. This basically nonchalant attitude makes sense for her character because growing up on Themyscira as the only child on an island of women, she hasn't been socialized into the shyness or the titillation at the sight of the human form, and she doesn't blush as people in man's world usually would if they walked in on someone like that. This straight-faced reaction from Diana makes this moment pretty unique compared to other movies, and it also does serve a bit of a purpose for the character arcs, because being exposed and vulnerable like this can sort of push fast-forward on their budding relationship and allow them to move more quickly toward connections, because they dispensed with the physical shyness right away. Steve is embarrassed for only a moment or so, and then he gets over it because he sees that Diana is nonchalant. Diana also has maybe a slight moment of hesitancy on the word say, but she gathers herself and continues matter-of-factly. She hasn't seen men like this before, and so she is naturally curious. Steve has his pause, and then his above-average response. This part got consistently good laughs in the theater screenings that we went to, but I personally would have preferred one penis-related joke instead of two. And my choice would have been to go with the penis watch mix-up as the better joke and leave this first one out. But that's just me. The watch joke, though, is the next thing. Diana asks, what's that? And there's some humor in Steve's reaction as he isn't quite sure what to say. 
And I admit that maybe this is why you needed two penis jokes, because some of the humor here is from the fact that the previous line, Steve was assuming that Diana was talking about his penis. And now he's thinking that maybe he interpreted that first part, because now she's asking about my penis. So his confusion is funny, and we're all kind of smiling, trying to think about how he's going to respond. But then he figures out that she's referring to the watch. This humor here is based on Diana's naivete about men, and it definitely works. But even though she's naive, she wouldn't be totally ignorant. Of course, she would have learned a lot of things over the years, very likely including anatomy and biology, and they have many animals on the island, so she would know about male mammals and such, even if they don't have human males on the island. But with the watch comment, she's actually already moved beyond biology and is looking at his items and a glimpse into his culture. So it's actually Steve who is more hung up on anatomy for longer. Diana was looking at anatomy briefly and then quickly moved on. One really great thing about this penis watch joke is that it actually continues well beyond the moment when Steve realizes his mistake. This joke and double entendre goes all the way through the lines where they're talking about what a watch does. And Diana is surprised and kind of laughs because you actually let something that small tell you what to do? This is a double entendre itself. She's teasing him for letting a watch tell him what to do. But that watch was confused for a penis. And so this is a subtle nod from the writers to the idea that men are often led by their sexual urges and testosterone. And this is commonly cited as an advantage that women have over men. Stereotypically, women are less prone to mindlessly follow their urges. Now, we're not saying whether that's true or false, and it certainly differs from individual to individual. We're just saying that it's a common notion, and this scene alludes to it in a subtle way that is pretty clever. So this is a little bit of the battle of the sexes, and there will be several other times throughout the movie where the movie touches on differences between men and women, but there's also common ground that they establish, too. On a more serious note, we also want to say a bit more about the watch, and more importantly, about the theme of time. Yes, time is a small thing in the sense of the watch, but time is also a huge thing in people's lives, at least people who are mortal. Diana, as an immortal, probably has a very different sense of time. And so here, she may be saying that she's surprised Steve lets time tell him what to do. And here, Diana is maybe sort of realizing that she needs to learn about time from Steve's perspective and not just learn about his watch. And in the end, even Diana does come face to face with the power of time. Time wins out as Steve runs out of time at the end of the movie. But thankfully, Steve knew he was running out of time, and he knew he had to make a choice in that moment at the climax of the movie. So in essence, time ran out, but it didn't tell him what to do. Steve made the choice of what he wanted to do with his last moments. This all becomes a sort of lesson for Diana. She sees what time means for mortal men, and she learns the significance of the watch, not only as a memento of Steve Trevor, but also as a representation of the lesson why people let time have power over them. Life is short, and you never know when you might run out of time altogether. It's a painful but important lesson. And so we have this time theme throughout the movie, and that theme begins here in scene 13 with a very memorable bit of dialogue so that the audience can't miss it. We will all remember this moment because of the penis watch joke bringing the attention to the watch. And the filmmakers also put in a physical object and connected it to the theme so that the audience can easily be reminded of the theme later on in the movie. Steve's actual lines about the watch go like this. It's a watch. It tells time. My father gave it to me, been through hell and back with him, now it's with me, and good thing it's still ticking. 
So he is also referring to his father here, which is why the watch is so meaningful to Steve. And the lines suggest that his father is dead, which is why the watch has been passed down. And the fact that the watch is still ticking suggests that Steve is happy but somewhat lucky to still be alive. This sets up the watch as an object that can foreshadow Steve's death later on. Right now, Steve's alive and it's still ticking, but that implies that it might stop at some point in the future and Steve could die. We also can presume that Steve's father suffered great turmoil in his time. The fact that both father and son have been through pain and tragedy is actually something that bonds them together. And the connection and clear love is something that Steve and Diana have in common, father to son and mother to daughter, respectively. The nature of that relationship is different from parent to child, but the fact that they both have strong connections to a parent is a commonality between Diana and Steve. Oh, and while we're talking about it, we don't necessarily think this will happen, but if Wonder Woman 2 involves Diana going to Hades to reclaim Steve, then this line here in Wonder Woman about Helen back will be completely epic in retrospect, just putting that out there. Okay, next in the scene, Steve covers himself with a cloth around his waist, and once he does this, he feels a bit more confident, and he then asserts himself in the conversation and takes the lead in the conversation. He asks Diana some questions, which gives the audience a chance to learn a bit, too. And it shows that Steve has probably been wondering lots of things up till now, but this is the first good chance he's had to try to get some answers. He rattles off several questions. Where are we? What is this place? Why does the water do that? How come you don't know what a watch is? But Diana only answers the last question. How come you speak English so well? She says that they speak hundreds of languages. This is a big setup that has a few payoffs later in the film. One payoff is when she spars with Samir. Another is when she translates the notebooks for the British. And probably the most important payoff is when she is able to connect with the woman from Veld. And then Diana goes to save the village. About the Amazons and their multiple languages, Diana says, we are the bridge to a greater understanding between all men. In a way, this is a commentary about women in general, not just the Amazons. William Moulton Marston would agree that women play a huge role in sanitizing the actions of men and bringing greater compassion and understanding to the world. But for the Amazons, it also refers to their divine mission to spread peace and love. By the way, this idea of Diana being a bridge between men is a good connection to Man of Steel where Jor-El hoped that Kal-El would be a bridge between the two peoples. And then there's also a connection here between this scene and a later scene in Wonder Woman. Uh, it's in terms of the performance from Chris Pine. So in this scene, Steve pauses, and then he has this line delivery, right. And that's similar to how he'll pause and then say on the boat, well, that's neat. But going on to the next beat in the scene, it's Steve thanking Diana for pulling him out of the water. Uh, he says, thank you for saving my life. He's giving her credit and humbling himself, which is not easy for him to do. And we can see that because he looks away right as he says the thank you. And we'll see that later, too, that he's a bit uncomfortable with being saved by a woman, especially because he doesn't know her full capabilities yet. So right now he just thinks that it's a normal woman who saved him. But to his credit, he actually does come out and say thanks. And then to her credit, she thanks him right back for what he did on the beach. Diana is sharing the credit rather than gloating or saying, you're welcome. These two thank yous also continue the mutuality pattern that we mentioned earlier. Their relationship is very new, but it is already being built on reciprocity. And it also speaks to an equality-based form of feminism that seems to show up throughout the film. She doesn't bask in the glow of a woman having saved a man. 
It was just what needed to be done at the time, and she was capable of doing it, so she did it. When he praises her for it, she just points out that they were both doing what they could. She thanks him as well for his efforts on the beach, which included killing the German who killed Antiope, and was actually about to shoot Diana. The equality angle is echoed later in the film, such as when Steve says in Veld, you did this, and she says, we did. Even the framing of many of the shots later in the movie involve placing Diana and Steve, or Diana and the other Oddfellows, together in equal positions. Here in scene 13, now that Diana has thanked him, Steve wonders if they might be letting him go. She tells him that she tried, but that it's not up to her and they're not going to be letting him go. This suggests that if it were up to her, she would let him go. She wants to make it clear that she shouldn't be blamed for his captivity. She seems to care about what Steve thinks, at least a little bit, and she says that she even asked to be sent with him. But with a glance from Steve, uh, intrigued by this idea of her going with him, she quickly realizes that she might have come off as overtly wanting to be with him. So she corrects herself by adding, or anyone, an Amazon, the Amazons. Interestingly, her correction has an implied segregation between her and the Amazons, suggesting she isn't an Amazon. She could have said something more along the lines of, or any Amazon, which would have included her in the Amazons. And this connects back to the scene earlier with Hippolyta, where Hippolyta separated Diana out from the Amazons. You're not an Amazon like the rest of us. Steve asks the Amazons, not knowing who these people are, and asking for clarification. Diana responds, it is our sacred duty to defend the world. Here, she is a bit more inclusive about identifying as an Amazon. However, the hour for our sacred duty could also be viewed as her and the Amazons as separate, but with the same shared duty. And I wish to go, but my mother will not allow it. Steve, in response to this, says he doesn't blame Diana's mother for not wanting to let Diana go, because it makes sense for a mother to be concerned for her child. So this continues the protectiveness that Hippolyta has for Diana, and we can see that Diana is struggling with this protectiveness because she wants to break out and do something. But Steve is saying he himself would not want anyone he cares about near the war. Although this is an obvious statement with regard to family and loved ones, it is interesting that it's referring to Diana specifically, as the two are beginning to have feelings for one another, suggesting that Steve doesn't want Diana to be hurt by the war either. Perhaps we're reading too much into this, but at the very least there's a hint of his eventual feelings for her. Likewise, Diana asks Steve why he wants to go back, so it's kind of nice that they're both concerned about the safety of the other. And Diana asking this, perhaps she's thinking herself that she doesn't want to see the war hurt him. But more prominent is her wanting to understand why Steve would put himself in danger if he could avoid it. Perhaps she is looking to see what his answer is going to be and if he's going to have the same moral compass that she does, which would validate some of the feelings that are starting to form for him. This line where Diana asks why Steve would go back to such a dangerous war is also a clear foreshadowing of Steve's death. He does go back to the war, and it does end up killing him, which is a great sorrow for the people who care about him. So Diana asks why he wants to go back, and he says he doesn't think want is the word. He guesses he's got to try. He brings up his father again, who said, You see something wrong happening in the world, you can either do nothing, or you can do something. And Steve says, I already tried nothing. This idea of do something or do nothing, with the clear answer being to do something, is one of the most important themes of the movie. We've already seen it with Steve in scene 11 when he realized he had to do something about Dr. Poison's research, and we'll trace it in future scenes as well. It becomes a mantra for Steve, 
But it also actually resonates with Diana as well, and it serves to connect the characters in yet another way. Right here in scene 13, the idea of doing something and not being held back speaks directly to Diana. She has felt held back by her mother and her situation on the island. But now, through her conversation with Steve, she is inspired and determined to act. It also connects with an unknown force in her core related to her divine creation. She was created to do something. We mentioned earlier that the father-son, mother-daughter relationships are a connection between Steve and Diana. But there's also a contrast here. Steve's father gave him a choice. But Diana's mother has been trying to limit Diana's choices, eventually giving her directives as a queen rather than advice or gentle guidance as a mother. So there's definitely a contrast in parenting styles. The complexity, though, is that Hippolyta gave the order not because she's a tyrant queen, but because she has a mother's protective love. And it's hard to blame Hippolyta for that, especially given that Hippolyta knows much more about the threat than Diana does. But right now, Diana would rather listen to Steve than to Hippolyta, because Diana has been looking for the opportunity to do something. She has that opportunity now, and she decides to act and retrieve the Godkiller sword. This crossing over of Steve's arc about doing something, and Diana's arc about compassion and pure-hearted heroism, takes the movie to the next level. It's not just a scene with fun banter, and it's not just themes, plot, and characters separately. It's themes that are embodied in the characters, and the characters' messages and inspirations are pushing the plot forward. And even though we love those deep threads, we also recognize the great acting in the scene, especially by Chris Pine, and the great directing by Patty Jenkins in this scene. One thing that Patty laid out and that Chris executed really well were the movements out of the water, picking up the watch, putting on his clothes. It not only helped to make the scene feel natural, but it provided some movement to contrast with a pretty stationary Diana. And more than that, Steve's movement in the scene served to emphasize the moments where he kind of slows down and stops. One place he stopped his movement was the thank you line. And the other place that he stopped, after putting on his pants and grabbing his shirt, was his line about, I already tried nothing. Then he moves again. So the blocking brought a nice visual emphasis to the most important lines of the scene. Those were the moments where the movement actually stopped. The editing also works well here, with simple coverage of the two characters, but it started with wider shots of the room, and a couple shots that have both of them included so we can tell how they're positioned relative to one another, and then we cut back and forth between medium shots, and eventually the editing goes to the tighter shots. And there's a tight shot when Diana says that she wants to go with him, and we get a tight shot on Steve reacting to that idea of her and him together. After emphasizing that moment, the editor goes back out to a wide two-shot and then the medium shots, until the very end of the scene when we get the last close-up, again on Diana. And this is a very purposeful close-up because it shows Diana wordlessly reacting to Steve's idea about doing something. This lets us know, through the emphasis of a close-up, that Diana is making an internal choice, and then that choice brings us right to the next scene. That is our analysis of scene 13 in the infirmary. We should also mention that the do something line reminds us of the famous quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And in this movie, if good men and good women uh, did nothing, then Ares would have triumphed. 
Um, and by the way, this quote, um, brainyquotes.com credits this quote to Edmund Burke, although variations of the idea have been credited to other people. On the topic of Steve Trevor and the moment here where he gives Diana credit for saving him, this actually connects to the early history of Steve Trevor in the comic books. In Sensation Comics number 3, for example, comic book resources pointed out that William Moulton Marston was drawing attention to the sexism of the day by ending that issue, an issue where Wonder Woman was most certainly the hero. It ended by having everyone in the public giving credit to Steve. It's like people just assumed that the hero must have been the man rather than the woman. To his credit in the story, Steve Trevor deflected the praise and said that it was Wonder Woman, his beautiful angel, who deserves the credit. And in fact, this kind of thing was sort of a running gag in the early Wonder Woman comic books. Uh, at the end, people would try to give Steve the credit, and Steve would end the issue by saying that it was actually Wonder Woman who saved the day. But it's not Wonder Woman by herself. You know, Steve Trevor is a hero in his own right. As Wayne Buck, a listener from YouTube, described, he said, quote, I see Steve as a reluctant hero, unlike Diana, who has no reluctance and is perhaps a bit naively eager to act on her compassion. Here's the evidence for this. In the flashback scene to the German camp, when Steve sees the notebook and realizes he has an opportunity to take it, he looks away with an expression of, rats, there's something more I could do. He, of course, reaches into the office for the notebook and runs all the risks that's entails. But Chris Pine, with that expression before he acts, has signaled to us a bit of reluctance on Steve's part. Steve sees what he needs to do and does it, but he isn't eager for the opportunity to do good. Later, in the scene in the infirmary, Steve reports that his dad said to him, When you see something wrong, you can either do nothing or you can do something. But then Steve says, And I already tried nothing. So his first natural impulse earlier in his life was to be a bystander. But then, for reasons we don't know, accepted that he could not just stand by. There is an interesting parallel to Rick in Casablanca, which Patty Jenkins has acknowledged as a strong influence. End quote. So thanks, Wayne, for those insights. Now that really is everything we have on Scene 13, but one of the things that we do in this concluding portion of the episode is to catch things that we missed in prior scenes. Looking back at the history lesson scene, Scene 3 in Wonder Woman, we did mention the pearl and the shell motif, but one of our listeners, Omesh Singh, made some very nice additional connections related to that motif. He pointed out that not only is Diana positioned as a pearl, with her sleeping area designed like a shell, but young Diana is also sheltered by Hippolyta, and so Hippolyta is protective like a shell. This positioning of daughter and mother as pearl and shell is reinforced when Hippolyta says, You are the most precious thing in the world to me, like a precious gem. Omesh also noted that pearls symbolize wisdom, and in that scene, Hippolyta was trying to impart wisdom, for example, that war is nothing to hope for. So we can keep an eye out for that pearl and wisdom motif later on in the film, and that's just a, an additional bit of interpretation for Wonder Woman that we wanted to drop in here. If, however, it's more Batman v Superman content that you're craving, then we recommend the DC Cinematic Minute podcast from Two Old Media. Alessandro and I will be guests on there next month, but in the meantime you can hear them going through the first several minutes of BVS, or Dawn of Justice as they call it. And if you want to venture out beyond DC, you can hear me as a guest on the I Love That Movie podcast. I had a great time there with Lisa talking about the only movie that I like even more than Batman v Superman, and that's my favorite movie, the Coen Brothers classic, The Big Lebowski. So check out I Love That Movie. It was a really fun episode. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
And of course, back on the DC side of things, there's the Suicide Squad cast for movie news and Man of Steel answers for additional analysis. Long live DC.